Hey, May 40 here. I haven't had a chance to read the latest indictments against Donald Trump, but I do know one or two things. One, we've never had, as Americans, so little trust in our institutions. All right? So if there was a great deal of trust in our institutions, then these indictments would be one thing. But given that uh, we've had significantly decreased trust in our institutions, such as the U.S. military, such as federal law enforcement, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, all right, this latest series of indictments against Donald Trump are just going to make it more likely that he will be the Republican nominee. And right now, Donald Trump stands a very good chance of becoming the next president of the United States. And I don't think that these new indictments diminish that possibility. In fact, they probably increase the possibility because it's very clear to Donald Trump his best opportunity to stay out of prison is to win the next election. And we've got decreased trust in the U.S. military. We've got decreased trust in federal law enforcement. And what, what hurts the Democrats here, I think, is that the first indictment against Donald Trump in New York City, when Alvin Bragg led off, I, I think that was devastating to the case against Donald Trump because Alvin Bragg's, Alvin Bragg, his indictment was the weakest of all of them. I suspect that this latest indictment stands a pretty solid ground. But because the Alvin Bragg indictment went first, right, that's going to make all, all these subsequent indictments similarly look like political hack jobs, right, even though they may well not be. But because when you, you lead with a political hack job, such as what Alvin Bragg did, then it contaminates everything else, and Republicans just overwhelmingly aligning themselves with, uh, with, with Donald Trump. And it, it's just kind of amusing. What, what, a, what, <laughs> what a formidable opportunity uh, Donald Trump has to, to be the next president of the United States. And it's amusing that our topic, too, is decoding liberal fascism because for people on the right, this seems to be an example of, of using you know, federal law enforcement to do what uh, politics has been unable to do, right, uh, prevent Donald Trump from having power. So Donald Trump is sitting pretty in the Republican presidential nomination fight. And he's also sitting pretty in the general election. He stands a really good chance uh, of beating out Joe Biden. Right now, he is neck and neck with Joe Biden, right? So public confidence in the military is the lowest in decades. Public confidence in federal law enforcement is the lowest in decades. Could Donald Trump really be president again? Yes. Right? The chances of Donald Trump winning another term as president of the United States is very real. This is from CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. Right? Yeah, he's facing multiple indictments, but he is not only in a historically strong position for non-incumbent to win the Republican nomination. Donald Trump right now is in a better position to win the general election than at any point during the 2020 election cycle and at almost any point during the 2016 cycle where he won. All right. No one in Donald Trump's current polling position in the modern era has lost an open presidential primary that didn't feature an incumbent. He's pulling in more than 50% support in the national primary. Right? He is overwhelming the field in the Republican primary. 
Okay, so what about in the general real clear politics is Joe Biden with less than a one-point margin over Trump in their polling aggregate? And this is of polls of registered voters, all right? If we don't limit the polls to registered voters, all right, non-registered voters historically skew more Republican. So Trump never led in a single national poll that met CNN's standards for publication for the entirety of the 2020 campaign. Biden was up by high single digits in the late summer of 2019. Biden is up maybe a point in the average of all 2024 polls today. At summer of 2015, Hillary Clinton was up by double digits over Donald Trump in late July. So right now, it's just kind of amazing and amusing how good Donald Trump stands as, as, as a chance of becoming the next president of the United States. And this indictment's not going to hurt him. All right. How do Democrats get these indictments in D.C.? All right, because the grand jury pool in Washington, D.C. is overwhelmingly black and overwhelmingly left-wing, overwhelmingly favorable to the Democrats. So that makes it really easy for the Democrats to get these federal indictments. All right, they're playing on their home court, which on the one hand makes it easy for the Democrats to get these indictments. On the other hand, it increases the distrust of anyone who isn't completely in line with the Democrats. It makes them distrust this use of federal law enforcement. All right, let's get a little bit of background here on fascism, the career of a concept from Paul Gottfried doing an interview here, April 28, 2016. Jonah Goldberg. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, and and I, what I want to know is because I actually got a little pushback on that. I had people say to me, uh, I like the, the Jonah Goldberg book. What's, what, what's the matter with it? And there are a bunch of things that matter, and one would be that he points to things – that you know supposedly make liberals just like fascists, but these are things that have had bipartisan support for decades. Mm-hmm. But he just overlooks that. So he'd have to say, if he's going to make that argument, that everybody's been a fascist. All, all the presidents, his preferred party and the Democrats, have all been fascists right. going back to the 1930s. And of course, he won't say that. And then you bring up, he was a he was aghast when Rand Paul made an unkind comment about the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Exactly. Well, okay. Whatever you want to say about the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that is a leftist thing, uh, and that is an anti – you know, uh, it's an egalitarian move. It's a, it's a leftist – it's the sort of thing that – well, anyway, if he were a conservative, he'd be against it and so on. But then also he's upset because Rand Paul uh, wanted to shut down the Department of Education or something. I mean right. I can't make any sense out of – I can't get an ideology out of Jonah Goldberg. So what's the basic problem with his – I mean what's wrong with that? Well, the basic problem is he doesn't know any history. He's a total ignoramus from what I can see. He's a cultural illiterate and ignoramus whose job it is to defend the Republican Party. And as you, you know, as, as both of us have, have discovered, um, he beats up on uh, the Democrats for things that have had bipartisan support for the last 50 or 80 years. Um, he uh, then, then takes Democrats who favored a much smaller government than the one that Jonah Goldberg favors and calls them fascists. Um, the... Uh, uh, there's not something else he does in his, in his book, which I, I think is just unconscionable. Um, uh, he takes things like affirmative action programs, which I, you know, I think they are loathsome. I'm totally opposed to them. And then compares them to Hitler's uh, treatment of the Jews or the Poles or something like that. This is ridiculous. Um, you know, the uh, uh, affirmative action programs are done in the name of left-wing political correctness and humanitarianism. Uh, that was not what motivated Hitler's policy toward the Jews. Uh, I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> And by the way, I should point out for people who just don't happen to know about it, Jonah Goldberg wrote a book called Liberal Fascism, and that, that's what we're talking about. And it right. sold extremely well, extremely well. 
But Okay, so yeah, a lot of Jonah Goldberg's work is incredibly shoddy. He's not a scholar, but guess what? Forty is not a scholar. All right, I'm not a scholar. A lot of my work is shoddy too, so I can kind of a little bit sympathize and identify with you know Jonah Goldberg's uh, glibness, right? His ease facility with words, but his lack of, of scholarly depth. But uh, let's get back to the origins of the modern world and the distinction between the left and the right largely lies in the difference between a buffered self and a porous self. So a buffered self believes that we can individually make our own meanings. The, that's the liberal left conception, right? That uh, we can create meaning in life through our own power of will, rationality. We can develop all these things on our own through our our own reason. The traditional, the medieval, the trad, the conservative conception is that uh, meaning is something that comes from our tribe, from our community, from our church, from our synagogue, from our nation. So philosopher Charles Taylor explicated this in his terrific 2007 book, The Secular Age, right? When a modern person is feeling depressed and melancholy, He's taught it's just your body chemistry or you're hungry or you have hormones malfunctioning or whatever. Then he feels relieved. He can take a distance from this feeling, right? The, the feeling is declared. It's not justified. Things really don't have this meaning. It just feels this way, right? So the, the modern gets to disengage from his feeling of depression, right? To make a distinction on between the mind and the body and can relegate the, the physical to one of those less important things that women take care of. Right? But the pre-modern does not have that luxury. Right? When he feels sad, when he feels depressed, when he feels melancholic, he feels like he's in the grip of a real thing. So this is the contrast between the modern, bounded, buffered self right, and the poorer self of the earlier enchanted world where we're affected by what was going on in the world, in our community, in our family, with our neighbors. So for the modern, the, the buffered self, the protected self, right? You get to take a distance from the world. You get to disengage from everything outside your own mind, right? You get to create meaning inside your own mind and define your responses to the outside world from within your own mind. The traditional self, the poorer self, right? The source of the most powerful and important emotions are outside of the mind, right? There's not this clear boundary between us and others, Right, so for the leftists, right, there is an ethos of a disengaged self-control and self-reflexivity, meaning monitoring yourself, that would have been absolutely inconceivable for pre-moderns, right? The, the people in the Middle Ages and earlier were not buffered, right? They could not step back from their mind, right? So they saw human beings as the center of the universe, right, not just as another creature, Right, so this is the crucial difference between moderns and pre-moderns. All right, so the former, right, the, the moderns believe that their mental states originate in this kind of physiological substratum that interacts with the rest of the physical world, producing either delight or annoyance. Now, a pre-modern couldn't seriously contemplate the thought that it just feels this way, not because he was ignorant of his feelings, but because he felt he was porous, that uh, what was going on around him affected him, that meaning was something that he developed out of his community, out of his tribe, right? His 
understanding of the world did not permit this clear-cut distinction between the inner self and the outer self, between how things feel, how they really are. So for the liberal left, they have this more deliberative disposition to distance from their feelings. But for traditionalists and conservatives, they don't have this distance. So for traditionalists and conservatives, patriotism is something that is intense and, and real, liberals are able to be much more disengaged and distant from patriotism and from traditional emotions. So conservatives look at liberals and lefties as you know, incredibly distant from traditional sources of feeling and meaning, family, loyalty to, to nation, to, to God, to, to your church, to, to these traditional sources of meaning. So the difference between the modern buffered liberal conception of the self and the pre-modern traditional poorer self is not just a matter of belief, right? It is a transformation of, of the Protestant revolution to take over all of life and to move this religious totalizing impulse into all of the secular world. It is this desire to do good that's then switched into social justice. So pre-modern people were opened up to forces that were for good and for ill and that would penetrate and mold themselves from the outside in. Right? That there was an order of things to which the individual has to compromise himself, to which the individual must bend to. There's a greater order of things than the individual self and his mind. There is a, a structure, a, a moral order, there's a way the world works. There is the reality of, of things outside himself to which the individual must bend. So liberals believe in this buffered independent self and conservatives believe in a much more vulnerable self because conservatives believe in a much more vulnerable self. They are obsessed with creating order, law and order around them and they are concerned that uh, degeneracy and delinquency and, and filth and, and corruption all around them is going to have a negative effect on themselves. But for the liberal left, they see the self as largely invulnerable, as the master of meaning for themselves. So conservatives are much less likely than liberals to understand themselves as invulnerable and the master of all meanings for themselves. Right? Conservatives believe we get our meaning from our community, from our family, from our nation. It's not just something that we create individually. Right, back to Paul Goffrey. Uh, you know, the, the sales of a book are not always in direct proportion to the book's merits. Right. I hate to have to point that out. All right, so your book, Fascism, the Career of a Concept, really does walk us through the, the, you know, the, the evolution of the idea of fascism as people looking back on it viewed it and, and how they thought about it, how they theorized about it, where did it come from, what was, it, what's, what was its essential nature. Why does any of that matter? I'll just ask you the question that you know, your seventh-grade teacher would ask about your, your book report. Why, why, does, why is this important to us? Why does it matter? Because everything we're told about history are now leftist lies. <laughs> um, well, okay, that, that's important. Well, let's hear you justify that. I like that answer. Okay, so I'm going back to Ronnie Goldman's terrific book on conservative claims of cultural oppression. Remember Anne Coulter wrote a book about treason? And she had this great line, whenever you back a liberal into a corner, he doesn't start crying. He says it's a complicated issue. Right, why is it so complicated? Because liberals have the ability to be much more disengaged and distant from whatever's going on inside of them or around them. So loving America, loving your God, loving Jesus, loving your church or your synagogue, right? These are just too simple emotions, right? To be nuanced, you have to be you know, open to hating 
So conservatives don't generally grasp nuance as well as people on the left, but uh, conservatives are pretty good at grasping treason. So the treason that's grasped by Ann Coulter and other conservatives accompanies the, the Buffett identity in its peculiar courtly rationality, right? It's the accompaniment of this different effective instinctual structure that embraces a coexistence of positive and negative elements, a mixture of muted affection and muted dislike in varying proportions and nuances, which is quite different from a traditional, uh, much more full-hearted approach to life, whether in love or hate. So conservatives are much more comfortable with the simple emotions of love and hate, right? Conservatives are much more inclined to black and white coloring, right? Conservatives are much more inclined to stories and poetry and art that has a clear ending. Conservatives are much more inclined to a worldview that uh, sees good and evil, right? Good friends and, and villains. So conservatives are good at grasping treason because they process this distant liberal nuance in different terms at the level of their own orientation to the world, their own makeup. And they see liberals as not really engaging with the world, that uh, liberals you know, sacrifice real feelings on the altar of this ethos of a disengaged, self-controlled, and self-reflexivity. So conservatives refuse to accept liberal claims of, of nuance and disengagement because they refuse to accept the identity that expresses itself at face value and she wants to go underneath it, right? So conservatives have this pre-modern, much more instinctual, wholehearted emotional structure. And conservatives see liberals and their claims to nuance as essentially engaging in treason. So liberals often claim to love their country, but as Jonah Goldberg observes, their attitudes do not comport with any normal understanding of what it is to love. Like imagine a man who relishes going out of his way to point out his wife's faults, and to say she isn't all that special. You'd think the guy isn't wholly committed to her. If a woman said, my daughter is fine, but she's really no better than any other kid, you might think she's lacking in the maternal love department. But this illustrates the truth about how love works. If you love something, you are presumed to find it superior to everything else. Right? Your reasons can be subjective. They can be impossible to quantify or to rationalize, but love, true love, is a mystery. So liberals present the you know, their reservations about the present and, and about the past, right? And conservatives see this as a pretext for the relish with which people on the left go out of their way to point out how America or Australia or England isn't all that special. America's fine, but it's really no better than any other country. How then can they claim to love America? So there's no precise formula for gauging when somebody has ceased loving his country or his wife. Now, adultery may constitute clear proof. But a wife does not need to wait until her husband actually embarks on a sexual affair before she discerns signs of his discontent and she arrives at her proper conclusions. And so this is the reason why conservatives do not feel they require evidence that liberals are actually cooperating with America's enemies before issuing their accusations because the mere intellectualization of patriotism through liberal reservation about past and present policies is already the seed of betrayal. Right. Liberals have this buffered, disengaged, distant you know, love of the traditional allegiances that uh, conservatives find so disconcerting. Back to Paul Gottfried. No, I, I have another book coming out in a few months by the same publisher called Revisions in Dissents, 
And I go through things like, you know, who was responsible for World War One, things like that. Uh, I think in which the left continues to hold, you know, the high ground um, and lies to us. Um, and you know, there, there are many examples of this that I give about, you know, the things you discuss in politically, you know, incorrect uh, history. Um, and it, 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 it's just a matter of sort of trying to clear the air a bit, you know, because we're choking in this miasma of lies, leftist lies. And, uh, you know, at one time you could be something like National Review, however bad it was in, in its apocalyptic anti-communism. And I agree with Larry Rothbard on this point, uh, at least on historical questions, they move beyond leftist orthodoxy. You don't get this anymore. And uh, I, I, in the case of fascism, you have a lot of good scholarship on this. Unfortunately, the stuff that has been written at the scholarly level, particularly by my friend Stanley Payne, who's probably the world's leading authority on fascism, this stuff does not, does not really affect popular consciousness or the media. Right. So there's all this talk about fascism in America, and there's never really been any kind of organic fascist movement in, in America. So Jenna Goldberg addressed a Hillsdale College audience on whether conservatives can reclaim the culture and this is how he concluded, be happy. There's nothing, there's nothing that uh, ticks off the left more than a happy conservative because it violates all the things they believe in. The place where liberals win the most, where the left wins the most, is at the level of claiming to be truly realized that they are you know, more deeply fulfilled and functional in the world and that to be you know, uh, adaptive and functional in the world, you have to be on the left. And uh, that's not necessarily true. Right, so conservatives have much more access to traditional wholehearted emotions of love and hatred because they don't have this distant, you know, porous identity. Right, so liberals are continually upset by racial, sexual, and economic inequality. Conservatives accept that the world is largely unfair and try to get their meaning in life, generally speaking, from their family and from their community rather than from you know, changing the entire economic or, or cultural or you know, political system of a country. Obviously, it's a lot easier to get you know, meaning in life from your, your family and your friends than changing an entire economic system. Um, and you know, we continue to, have to hear the same lies repeated. There was a point that our friend Hans Hermann Hoppe made, for which he was punished years ago, in which he pointed out that however bad Nazi Germany was, it was not totalitarian to the same extent as Stalin's Russia. And it's perfectly correct. Uh, there was you know, not the same degree of thought control under the Nazis. The economy was certainly not controlled. I mean, they may have killed people, including my relatives, but you know, it was not as totalitarian. Well, I think Hans lost his position at a number of sort of libertarian or conservative libertarian uh, magazines. They wouldn't let him write anymore because uh, this was uh, so unacceptable. What he said would have been, you know, uh, uh, would have been seconded in the American Academy in the 1950s. Um, but we have become so hysterically anti-fascist and, in the worst sense, anti-Nazi, that you can't tell the truth anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think at some level we have to start telling the truth again. And in the case of the anti-fascism, I think it represents a dangerous, poisonous totalitarian force, uh, which is a danger to our liberties. Um, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is a far greater danger to our liberties than fascism. Yeah, it's weird. We've got this huge anti-fascist movement, but virtually no fascist movement in the United States. So I completely agree with Paul Gottfried here. Ever was. Uh, that, that is why, you know, I try to expose the dangers of anti-fascism. I, I don't really write in any kind of, you know, moralizing fashion in the book, but I do show the extent to which anti-fascism has sort of poisoned our, uh, the consciousness, particularly of Europeans, I think less so in America. 
And um, this does go back to the communist movement and to, and to the cultural Marxists particularly. And I, you know, I think it's very important to emphasize the danger of anti-fascism and to point out that anti-fascism is a greater threat to our liberty than fascism ever was. Real fascism, generic fascism. Uh, so you know, that, that, that's why I think these problems are relevant. <laughs> All right, I, I have to. I, I was going to let you go, but I, I have to probe a bit more here on this because I, I can't just leave on that on that statement. G- give me some specific. I want you to defend that. G- give me some specifics on how. And, and by anti-fascism, you mean this sort of hodgepodge of different people, basically on the left, who condemn virtually everything they oppose as fascism. Uh, what are they doing that's such a threat to us? And I ask that rhetorically, but I, I uh, from my point of view, because I. So one of the most bogus strategies by pundits and by by gurus. Right, people who come up with ridiculous ideas like you know, the threat of, of liberal fascism is the, the tool of analogies. And so you'll find with pretty much every guru, they are incredibly good at uh, coming up with analogies. So let's stop with ana- like the, the yes, one you analogies. talked about body odor, yes. you know, with the right. fake it till you make it thing that you said. And then this one with God, how, do, how have you been able to do that? I have no answer. That's the way I think. I think, what is it, immediately I hear an idea, and I picture, I, I think a lot in pictures, oddly mm-hmm. enough, I picture an analogy. I've been trying to do that, and, and I, but it's, it's hard. Yeah, well, it's I It's hard to find yeah. it on the nose, too. Uh, that's, look, it's a very interesting thing about how. Yeah, so an analogy is not an argument. Right, it's a sign, really, that you're you're dealing with with a con man, and and that that uh, so many so many pundits, you know, are always using analogies. It's you know, it's a sign that you're you're being played. Uh, you've got people like uh, Malcolm Gladwell. All right, uh, they're just always reaching for analogies that reduce complex human behavior into some kind of predictive rule. Looking at decoding the guru's Reddit, it's also smug and self-satisfied, and uh, there's just something so compelling, but misleadingly so, about people who are good with analogies, right? People like Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein, Malcolm Gladwell, Jordan Peterson, Dennis Prager, all right, uh, probably Ben Shapiro. They're all very good reasoning, very good at reasoning by analogy, but uh, reasoning by analogy isn't really reasoning. It's not not making an argument. It gives the appearance of conveying profundity, such as making an argument about liberal fascism. All right. It feels good, particularly when Donald Trump is indicted yet yet again and you if you're on the right, you feel like, oh, the, the, the Democrats, they are abusing our political system and my God, it's liberal fascism. All right. It's an appealing analogy. It sounds profound, but it's bogus. I can answer that. But I want I really want to hear your answer. What, what is the threat of fascism or what? what, what is the, what's the threat of anti-fascism? Why is, it, why is that to be feared more? Because that was what you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the threat is that, that um, uh, in order to fight an the enemy Tom that Wood hasn't Show, existed episode for many, many years, which as I argue was never much of an enemy to start with, <laughs> um, what, what they insist on doing is uh, using uh, resources, our resources, taking away our freedom, stepping on our freedom, controlling our speech, restricting what we're allowed to believe and what we're to, to, uh, allowed to say, uh, so that this struggle can be pursued. And of course, the fascist enemy keeps being identified with whatever an advancing totalitarian left decides to oppose on a given day of the week. So that, I mean, at this point, if you oppose transgendered bathrooms somewhere, 
uh, you are uh, already on the slippery slope to fascism. Uh, you know, or in Europe, uh, if, if an anti-immigration party wins in Austria, I've read that fascism is coming back to Central Europe. Uh, so, so that I, you know, I, I think anti-fascism is a continuing threat to our freedom because every uh, every infringement on our liberty, every infringement on the will of nations or on uh, you know whatever majorities of countries decide, if if, if it's not politically correct, will be attacked um, as a return of, a return to to fascism. Uh, for this reason, I think it is very important that we recognize that anti-fascism, as I said before, is, is antithetical to liberty. Well, that- so, yeah, occasionally an analogy can be profound, such as my eucalyptus analogy, all right, the, the eucalyptus question, right? Occasionally, if an al- analogy is apt, right, it can be a useful beginning into a system of thought, but it's no excuse for thought. It's no excuse for argument. Right. It can encourage the development of thought along a certain line. Right. I was just watching Cheers last night, and uh, it hit a little close to home. So this is Woody talking about working as a bartender for some star athlete who was getting enormous amount of attention. This is season eight, episode three, A Bar is Born. Salad. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough being a celebrity. You know, I used to get that all the time when I was playing for the Sox. It's a real pain. Yeah, you're lucky, Sam. Everyone forgot about you a long time ago. <laughs> Last time I saw your name in print was two years ago in a crossword puzzle. Name a former Red Sox player in 15 letters, and even then I had a lot of spaces left over. <laughs> yeah, well, I still wouldn't trade places with poor old Robin. Poor old Robin happens to be one of the richest, most powerful men in the world, not to mention being generally gorgeous. Yeah, but he hasn't gotten anywhere with Rebecca, has he? He didn't get anywhere with that babe either. I'm not one of the richest, most powerful men in the world. I'm just a lowly bartender. What's his excuse? Good point, Sammy. I I know why she's not going to bed with that guy, because there's this little voice in the back of her head that keeps saying, wouldn't you really rather drive a Sammy? Poor chump men stand a chance. Yeah, still- I mean, doesn't this sound like the type of you know excuse and analogies and, and arguments that, that I make all the time? Well, Sam, it'd be nice to have Cole Cud's money, wouldn't it? Uh, so he's got bucks. I mean, what's he doing? All he does is hustle. Me? I enjoy my life. I live it my way on my own terms. There you, very go, happy. Sammy, there you go. And well, you should be, Sam, you know. You may not be wealthy and powerful, but those who really know you respect you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. True, Sam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Well, how could we not? You know, you've, you've been through adversities that would have crushed other lesser men. Well, I don't know. No, no, really. And when I think of the sorry state your life's in now. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Uh, well, I, yeah, maybe I'm not as young as I used to be. And maybe I did blow my life savings and maybe this job doesn't pay that much. And maybe I don't have a family or any future to look forward to. <laughs> but at least... What, Sam? At least I'm happy. <laughs> and that's why we admire you. You know, I think I speak for everyone in the bar here when I say that if there had been any of us, we would have blown our brains out years ago. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet of you guys. <laughs> Oh, man, there's some great stuff there in Cheers. 
And uh, some great stuff here from Paul Godfrey, January 19, 2016. Well, today we are talking about the neoconservatives in particular. We're talking about a column by Jonah Goldberg, who writes for National Review. He's a very, very well-known commentator. And he's saying we shouldn't use the term neoconservative anymore. This is what the neocons have been saying for a long time. Sometimes they claim they don't even exist. There are no neocons. We made this up. It's a terrible slur that we invented, even though it's what the neocons themselves used to tell us we should call them. Now they don't want us to call them that. They're pretending that they never told us to call them that, but they did. So I'm talking to Paul Gottfried about this because I don't know anybody who is filled with more loathing than neocons than Paul Gottfried, but he's so scholarly and great, and he's so incisive and wonderful. I just – I got to talk to him. When I see Jonah Goldberg write something like this, got to talk to Paul Gottfried who's been a guest on the show several times in the past. He is Professor Emeritus of Humanities at Elizabethtown College. He's the author of many books, uh, several of which I have reviewed over the years. He has a brand-new book on fascism coming out. We'll say a little something about that probably toward the end of our conversation, and I'll definitely have him back on mites who want to have a code word to use to attack Jews. He doesn't go to quite that extreme. Mm -hmm. He does say there were people called neoconservatives. He said, but these were people who, sure, they were hawkish during the Cold War, but everybody was hawkish during the Cold War, so that doesn't distinguish them any. Mm -hmm. And he says that really to think that there are only two alternatives, isolationism and neoconservatism, that's not true either. He says the term is just confusing. It's not really clear what it ever really referred to, so forget about it. What's uh, is there anything wrong with that? Well, there, there are a number of problems. What, what one is a should we say uh, a problem of historical memory? The term was used for a very long time, and neoconservatives assiduously distinguished themselves from traditional conservatives. Uh, in fact, they wrote entire books showing wherein they differed. Uh, unlike the traditional right, they had utter contempt for uh, Robert Taft, uh, for uh, Southern uh, segregationists, for people who did not support the Civil Rights Act, for people who didn't admire Harry Truman. Um, for people who didn't accept great society. Yeah, can a tiny group of people change the world? Well, neoconservatives showed yes. I mean, there's absolutely no constituency for neoconservatism, but it's an incredibly influential ideology that uh, captured a great deal of space in the American body politic. So, yeah, if a tiny group like neocons can dominate American politics, why not, say, a tiny group of paleocons? Programs. Uh, they accepted just about all of these uh, these things as good, or, or these people as good. And uh, even though they opposed the uh, the Soviet Union, they generally did it for leftist reasons. Um, uh, for example, that the Soviet Union did not uh, recognize uh, the kinds of labor unions that existed in the West, or um, certain Jewish refuseniks were not allowed to go to Israel. Um, the uh, uh, the older anti-communist uh, uh, movement saw communism as a great threat to Western Christian civilization. Uh, and uh, they're quite happy to ally themselves not only with social democrats, but also with people on the right like Francisco Franco. Um, so, so that even the anti-communism was different. And finally, the, uh, the old right had no desire to bring global democracy to everybody, unlike the neoconservatives. Um, they were quite happy with, with authoritarian regimes as long as they were conservative authoritarian regimes. Uh, and they were most conservative. So I remember in, in my 20s in particular when I was sick, and largely isolated, I, I wanted some grand vision, and I found it in Dennis Prager's presentation of ethical monotheism and this idea of I want to do good, and, wow, I'd want America to do good, and so if America can go overseas and, and do good, uh, neoconservatives tend to be really good with words, and though Dennis Prager's not quite a neoconservative, people, some people like who don't have a real life going on, they're particularly vulnerable for some sort of inspiring vision. And so some people will pursue that, you know, inspiring vision to, you know, public restrooms. 
other people will you know do do it at the the cliffs over Bondi Beach, and other people will head into converting to Judaism, and some people you know support neoconservative visions of transforming the world. Concerned about preserving Republican constitutional institutions in the United States. So there were neoconservatives, but, you know, who distinguished themselves very carefully from the traditional right for which they had utter contempt. Uh, the problem came when they took over the right. And, you know, they did purge people like me and someone like Murray Rothbard had been purged long before um, <clears throat> by the... Yeah, Paul Godfrey takes things very personally. ...the conservative movement of the 1950s. But uh, once that happened, they then created a kind of a new narrative, uh, uh, which is that... You know, all the good people were always neoconservatives. There were some extremists, McCarthyites, or uh, people who were isolationists, but all good conservatives really thought like them, and it just took a while for them to come around. And finally, we get the, uh, the Jonah Goldberg narrative, and he's not the first to use this narrative, because uh, I see about, about once every 10 years, it seems to uh, surface, that um, neoconservatives, the term neoconservative is not very useful, because anything we understand as conservative um, is you know, held by neoconservatives, and there is no distinction. Now, that is partly correct, because they purged all their opposition. <laughs> you know, it's just like uh, uh, Marxist-Leninism in Russia meant Stalinism, because Stalin got rid of his, his opponents. So in that sense, they were right. I mean, people who were um, paleo-libertarians, paleo-conservatives, the old right, all of these people were marginalized when they took over. So in fact, in a sense, Goldberg is right, because of these massive purges, because of the concealments that have occurred, they are, you know, they, they are the ones trying to run the conservative show, uh, although right now they seem to be facing a bit of a problem. They're dealing with the populist right, which they hate, um, and they're, they're trying to stifle it, get it out of the way, associate it with fascism or whatever, or anti-Semitism, although it's pretty hard to argue that Trump is an anti-Semite. Um, but they'll do anything to get rid of it, because I think they do see their power as being threatened. So in other words, it's for, for Goldberg to say that Look, neoconservative views are not bizarre outliers by any means. They are right. really the mainstream of conservative thought. Well, yeah, no wonder, because you know you, you made sure that nobody else got funding or invitations exactly. or whatever. <laughs> you... Yeah, so neoconservatives are very good at developing funding. There's a tremendous amount of money available to neoconservative writers and scholars. I was at a kosher restaurant, and there were you know full-time writers there. Right, who write for Breitbart and who write for various you know, neocon publications, right? They get subsidized lives where they get to pursue writing full-time as long as they push the neoconservative agenda, which is terrible for America. It's like the radio talk show hosts such as uh, Dennis Prager who says, oh, we're in a civil war, that uh, every day we're becoming more like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, that uh, essentially the, the barbarians are at the gates, they're inside the gates, but I'm fighting for you. Right. You can make a, a pretty doggone good living uh, pushing lives and pushing, you know, ideas and arguments that are really destructive. You smeared them out of existence. You collaborated with the mainstream media mm -hmm. to destroy people's reputations. And then you say, hey, look, there's nobody around but us neocons. Right. Think about the level of self-discipline and distance and reflexivity that you need to be working in sports journalism or sports broadcasting, right? You're in an area of life where it's just so obvious that different groups have different strengths. I mean, people from West Africa tend to have very different talents and skills than, than people from East Africa. Uh, people from Africa tend to have very different, you know, sporting talents and skills than people from Europe and uh, who then have different talents and skills from people from East Asia as opposed to South Asia. I mean, think about 
overall, India, a, a country with about the lowest level of athletic achievement uh, of any major country in the, in the world. So you are just being stared at in the face by a very uncomfortable reality that if you even allude to it, it will be the complete end of your broadcasting career. All right. It will be the end of your career in polite society. It will be the end of your journalism career. So imagine that you want a, a job in journalism, which I love journalism. I love broadcasting. I love talk radio. But to hold down a job in these fields, you have to be so disciplined. You have to be so distant from reality that you can be you know, forced to encounter and discuss and comment and broadcast on reality every day, but you cannot ever give a hint about how reality really works, which is different groups have different gifts. I mean, I would love to do a show with Skip Bayless, or I'd love to do a, you know, a, a talk show on, on sports or on, on politics, but it, it would be so hard. You'd have to have so much discipline to do such broadcasting and never ever hint at how the world works, that uh, group differences in IQ you know, lead to very different life results for different groups, that different groups have different gifts, all right? You'd be staring you know, at reality in the face, and you'd have to you know, be strongly incentivized to manufacture all sorts of reasons you know, why the reality that you're showing on the TV screen, the reality that you're commenting on, the reality that you're writing about, right, why it breaks down into very significant group differences. But if you, you know, start touching on the truth of group differences, that's the complete end of your career. And neocons are very good at developing funding and cutting off funding for people who disagree with them. Yeah. So now the word doesn't really mean anything because it really just means the conservative movement as it exists today. Yeah, well, so Gold, what is it? Yeah, Goldberg, by the way, would agree with you because he did write a piece about a year and a half ago about the legacy of William F. Buckley, uh, who threw all the wing nuts off the bus or something, or you know, ran them over with the bus, with the conservative bus. But he did admit that purges had had to take place in order for conservatism to become respectable. What do you think it means that that somebody like a and what does it mean for conservatism to become respectable? It means respectable to the people who control almost all our institutions, right? meaning people on the left. Right? The left has done a very effective job at taking control of almost all our institutions. So to make conservatism respectable, you have to essentially turn conservatism into another vehicle of the left and not talk about group differences Right, you know, play down traditional ties to to family, uh, you know, make peace with same-sex marriage and the transgender revolution, and uh, then you get to become respectable. Ted Cruz would use the term neoconservative as a pejorative. That's really surprising. It is, isn't it? I mean, he, I, I, I think the uh, someone like Cruz does see the big picture. You know, he understands that the neoconservatives, you know, are a force which is distinguishable. From yeah, even you know conservative Republicans, as he understands them, and they're almost a kind of foreign presence from his point of view. Uh, he's also trying to put distance between himself and somebody like Jeb Bush or even Rubio, uh, who are entirely scripted by the neoconservatives, particularly on foreign policy. In the case of Rubio or Fiorina, uh, so uh, he is using. I, I think even Christie has used neoconservative, strange as it may seem, in a pejorative. Yeah. So why are the neoconservatives so influential? Because they have so much money and so much influence and so much power. I might just play a little bit here from Stephen Miller, one of the few people in political life who I respect and, and like. ...of justice that clearly seems to be weaponized. 
Well, the politics of this, Sean, I think are clear. You're going to see millions of voters rally around Donald Trump as a result of this unprecedented persecution, and you're going to see his campaign turbocharged. But that doesn't change the fact that they are trying to throw this man in jail for multiple life sentences. So what's at stake here is the president's freedom, and as your earlier guest said, free speech and the Constitution itself. Sean, this indictment is the legal equivalent of the French guillotine, the reign of terror. This is a mob mentality to take out Donald Trump. They are criminalizing free speech. They are criminalizing resistance to the deep state. They are criminalizing the questioning of an election result. They are criminalizing any resistance to Democrat officials in the states who violated election laws. They are criminalizing anyone who resists DOJ on any level, on any policy matter whatsoever. Free speech will not survive if this indictment succeeds. You know, Jason, I, I know you were actively involved in the Russia hoax. We covered that story for three years. Okay, we, I don't care what Jason uh, has to say. The approval of people God, have a cult me, members keep going give up. Give me Stephen hey, Miller. Miller. Shut up garbage that Jason. Left out the part about Jason. peacefully. Oh. They purposely left that out. Purpose of this is no, no, no changes were made leading up to January. Like this from ever happening. The timing always happens to be ah, hours, shut up with, hours with Jason. after bad Come. news about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Then they Let's throw it in the coming. It's going to come. It's yeah. going to come the next time we have Hunter Biden news. That's when it's going to come out of Georgia. Well, it's happened three times, but I'm sure it's a mere coincidence, Congressman. I think it's a conspiracy theory. Steve, real quick, yeah. final 15 seconds. You get the last word. You want to talk about a conspiracy against the United States? Then throw the Mueller team in jail. Throw the Clinton team in jail. Throw everyone perpetrating the Russia hoax in jail. That was the conspiracy against the United States, just like Biden has been conspiring with his son, Hunter. And by the way, enriching him and his entire family. Uh, and that. Okay, let's get back to more even-handed and thoughtful analysis from Paul Godfrey. Way, uh, ...during this campaign. All right, so maybe we should say a little something about let's 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 get Jonah Goldberg out of our minds for a minute and just go back to the origins of neoconservatism. I've covered this a few times on the show, but after all, it's five hundred and seventy some odd episodes, and people haven't probably memorized them right, all. So, right. how would you explain the origins of? And uh, Sonny says that uh, Stephen Miller is a white identitarian ethno fascist. <laughs> right, to call him a fascist means you can't really <laughs> relate to reality. I mean, a fascist is against traditional family structures. A fascist is anti-Christianity. Uh, a fascist, you know, wants all power in the hands of the government. There has never been a fascist movement in the United States. So, uh, you know, I'm glad you're here, Sonny, to present, you know, contrary points of view. But, uh, boy, you're really, you're really reaching there. Of this phenomenon to somebody. Where did this all come from? How did it happen, and who, who were they to begin with? Yeah, well, they, they were a group mostly of New York journalists, uh, and, you know, I decline to describe them as brilliant uh, professorial intellectuals. Uh, I think in many ways Irving Crystal was typical, of the, or Pedoritz, typical of the first generation of neoconservatives, and they were basically New York Jewish journalists um, who had a very, very strong sympathy for Israel, um, who were reacting against the rise of what they saw as McGovernism in 1972, and saw the Republican take, Party being taken over by people who were sympathetic to the PLO, and who were going to turn their backs on the Soviet problem. They were also, and the government was notoriously squishy soft on, on, on the communists, and did have a long, did have a period of communist fellow traveling in his background. So, you know, they, they were anti-communist Zionists uh, who leaned in a kind of social democratic direction, uh, but also were able to present themselves as moderate conservatives. In fact, Crystal, when he talks about it, I think it was a biography or something of a, of a, of a neoconservative, um, points out that he has created a new form of conservatism. It does not exist in Europe. It only, it's, it's, it's an American, um, uh, an exotic American creation. Well, actually what it was, was uh, a company. So why does this form of conservatism not exist anywhere else? Because it's not conservative, right? What most people I notice in Australia and in the United States think is conservative 
is commitment to low you know, marginal tax rates and essentially a libertarian approach to economics, right? This is not traditional right wing. Right? People who are very much for family and nation, right? People with traditional ethnic ties, right? They don't really care much about marginal tax rates, right? To, to be right wing is to be for your in-group. It is to be for traditional ways of doing things, Right, it is to be strongly nationalist. It's not really about libertarian economics and low marginal tax rates. Nation of New Deal, Great Society, uh, economic programs, uh, support for big government, together with a, an anti-Soviet foreign policy, and a particularly strong focus on Israel's security. And this, these became the essential elements of neoconservatism. Um, very opportunely, though, that they, they developed a friendship with William F. Buckley, uh, who was then Mr. Conservative. And he did crave their social acceptance for reasons I have never understood. But, you know, I don't understand how his mind worked. Well, it's the most natural thing in the world to crave acceptance from people who have more money and more power and more influence than you do, right? Everybody wants to belong at the cool kids' table. You know, everybody wants to attach themselves to success and to money. And if you can get on a good earner... Right. It's a very natural human emotion. Time, but he did crave their acceptance, and they began writing for National Review and assumed a very prominent place in Buckley's conservative movement. Um, an another figure who's not quite part of that group, but represents a compatible ideology is Harry Jaffa. Because remember, Jaffa was a... So Harry Jaffa was at Claremont. So March 28, I subscribed to the Claremont Review of Books for a year. And three, uh, yesterday, I got an email harassing me that my subscription, like three months into a year-long subscription, is about to expire. And they gave me an email address to inquire about it, and the email address didn't work. So I'm not a big fan of Claremont right now. But, uh, yeah, I'm being very, very petty. Uh, Sonny says if Stephen Miller had power, he wouldn't allow people to live as they wish, and he would impose his will on everyone. Well, doesn't everyone want to rule the world? If you are for making abortion you know, legal, right, you are imposing your will on millions of dead, unborn babies. Right? If you want the speed limit to be 80 miles an hour, right, that's going to come with increased energy consumption and a higher number of traffic deaths. If you want to make the you know, speed limit 45 miles an hour, that's going to come with its own downsides. There are no solutions in life, or there are uh, uh, trade-offs. So everybody wants to impose there will. Uh, different people have different conceptions of, of liberty. So, uh, yeah, th there would be changes to America if Stephen Miller had more power, just like there'll be changes to America if uh, you know, Joe Biden gets a second term. Now, in, in the big picture, for 99% of people, 99% of the time, it's not going to matter who the next president of the United States is. Right? The president of the, of the United States, you know, at most can make perhaps a 5% change in the direction of a country. In some areas, they can have a significant change. So we would not be facing the prospect of a nuclear war with Russia or any kind of war with Russia if the Biden administration hadn't rushed, you know, pell-mell into arming Ukraine. Joe Biden has been strongly on board with arming Ukraine and thus stirring up a major conflict with Russia. This is going to be 40 times worse than our 2003 invasion of Iraq, right? Due to the nature of nationalism, which has been fired up in Ukraine and in Russia, you're going to have incredible levels of enmity throughout uh, Central and Eastern Europe for many, many years to come. This 
will would just be an absolute disaster and is entirely unnecessary. All right, there's no need for us to get so deeply involved in Ukraine. It has absolutely nothing to do with American national interests. And perhaps only someone who is sufficiently strong a personality as Donald Trump would have had the backbone to withstand the advice of the entire foreign policy establishment, which very much wants to subsidize Ukraine. Why is our foreign policy establishment so eager to intervene? Because you get no sense of importance staying home and minding your own business. People want to feel important. I want to feel important, so I give a live stream and I trade my ideas and I listen to your ideas and we go back and forth and that is one way that I get a sense of importance. If you're in foreign policy, right, you don't get much of a sense of importance out of saying abstain, don't get involved, don't interfere, don't subsidize, don't go to war, don't invade, don't provide weapons, right? Don't impose sanctions, right? Where is the sense of importance? There's none to be had from abstaining. So unfortunately for our foreign policy officers and our foreign policy establishment, our foreign policy elites, all the incentives to feel important lead people to intervening. So why does the United States intervene all over the world? In large part to give a feeling of importance to the people who decide to make a career in foreign policy. Why does our government interfere in so much of our daily life, including with the civil rights industrial complex? Because it gives people who are verbally skilled, people who are good at playing the game, right? it, it gives them access to power. It gives them an opportunity to feel important by regulating, educating, bullying people in the, their most you know, private affairs. Uh, here is their opportunity to shine. Right? Here's the fix of The legal system is playing with fire. Love that line. Tell us why. Well, I think systematically, out of some strange and bizarre pathological hatred of Donald Trump and, and fear of Donald Trump, they're dismantling the Constitution brick by brick. They're destroying 234 years of election protocol. I mean, there was a line in there, Sean. I read the indictment. It said that Donald Trump was guilty, quote, of unlawfully discounting a legitimate vote. If that were a crime, Stacey Abrams would be in prison. For two years, she said she was governor of Georgia. We had Hillary Clinton say that Trump was Ill- illegitimate and she was going to join the resistance. Even Jimmy Carter said that the Russians got him elected and he was illegitimate. Remember those movie stars, Sean, in 2016? They cut commercials asking the electors to nullify their constitutional duty and ignore the popular vote in their states and swing it to Hillary. 2004, we had 32 House Democrats and Senator Barbara Boxer tried to throw out the Ohio delegation, the Ohio state tally to swing it to John Kerry. So, it's this asymmetry and the unequal application of law that bothers people. So they're going after Trump's subordinates for supposedly saying, I don't know. That's what James Comey did 245 times under oath in front of Devin Nunes' intelligence committee. John Brennan, Andrew McKay, James Clapper, they not only lied under oath, they did admittedly so. They admitted they did without consequences. Donald Trump makes a phone call. And what happens? He's impeached. Joe Biden makes a phone call. He doesn't threaten to delay. He says he's going to cancel, and he, he doesn't look for corruption. He adds to it. He fuels it. Nothing happens. He takes uh, documents as vice president and as senator for a decade and a half, three locations. Nothing. He sends the FBI after Donald Trump. The American people, you know, they're sick of, they're sick of the collusion of 2016 farce. They were sick of the Russian disinformation laptop of 220, and they can't even wait till 2024. And I think at some point, people are going to conclude that if they don't say something and rise up, they're not going to have a country left. You expressed in the same column a thought I've been making, not quite as eloquent as you. You say, to be blunt, Biden is one more serious fall from physical incapacity. Uh, I've been saying he, he's one fall away from, from a, an avalanche of Democrats abandoning him, coupled with now significant, very real bribery scandal allegations. What happens to him? Absolutely. And, well, I mean, the, the conversation, the narrative was maybe, maybe not. He will run again now, as he probably won't. 
And then the narrative is now, maybe he won't even be able to finish out his first term. And the narrative was, well, maybe there's Bobolinsky and maybe Archer. And now that the narrative is, well, there's IRS whistleblowers and there's oligarchs in Ukraine that have evidence and there's documents. So it's mounting, it's accelerating both his physical incapacities and the case against him. And that's reflected, Sean, in this shrill, desperate effort to criminalize this candidate, Donald Trump, and ruin him in an asymmetrical fashion. And I think it's so obvious that finally what can't go on won't go on. It's unsustainable. And the American people are going to say, we're either going to have a country or we're going to have this banana republic that we're seeing now under the Biden administration, and they'll vote accordingly uh, and get rid of this stuff. Because if they don't, it's toxic. We don't have a country anymore. You know, and, and I think you're right on both points. Look, I'm biased towards the right. I'm biased towards, you know, approving of what Victor Davis Hanson just said. A great fan of Lincoln, um, later on the civil rights movement, and argued that equality was the essential conservative principle. And the neoconservatives had no problem with that, since Whoa, they accepted Victor a large government, all kinds right. of social programs. Let's go you know, back they... to the final comments here from Victor Davis Hanson, talking with Sean Hannity. Any Democrat, the the prominent hour. Democrats now saying, this is too real, we can't risk it, and going against Biden? Uh, not yet, but they're going to be Democrats in purple states when they go back and look at the, in their summer vacation and they look at the polling. They don't want yeah. to go on record of doing, get, going along with this. So I think you'll see some defection for their own All survival. Right. Great to have you. Victor Davis Hanson. Yeah, I, I don't think Gavin Newsom would be a, a terrible president. I think he's been a decent governor of California. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be losing sleep at night if he were president of the United States. Back to Paul Godfrey from 2016. They were critical of them. They were critical of their excess, but not critical of the concept you know, of having the government intervening massively in uh, social, uh, social, social policy and uh, even economic redistribution. So, so somebody like Jeff and some of the other followers of Leo Strauss were, were important in providing a kind of uh, intellectual respectability, or if you will, window dressing uh, for the neoconservatives. Uh, and then, then I think by the, by the late 80s... I remember one time I came out of uh, algebra class. I had to go back to take algebra class at community college. So I was such a shoddy math student in, in high school. And coming out of algebra class, like some, th this guy I was friendly with just started making disparaging remarks about Republicans, and I just didn't have the inner strength to fight back. I, I just wanted to fit in. Uh, desire to fit in, man, it's, it's such a strong human emotion. Uh, many of us are, you know, quite rightly willing to, you know, give up a whole lot just to fit in because frequently that's to our, you know, evolutionary adaptive advantage. But uh, when, when people with, with money and power, right, and who have the ability to provide incentives for intellectuals and for writers to align themselves with a particular point of view, like the neoconservative one, it's, uh, it's hard to resist that. In the 80s, they'd become pretty much um, a group looking for government sinecures. Uh, they were able to get hold of so-called uh, conservative philanthropic organizations like uh, Bradley, Olin, uh, and uh, Smith Richardson, and they used these foundations to fund their own. A very important victory for them was getting hold of the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities in '80, where they pushed out and. Yeah, it's kind of sad that uh, American nationalists haven't been able to raise that much money and and provide careers and jobs and pathways and trajectories for for people who are primarily nationalists rather than you know internationalist. He famed a very nice Southern gentleman, uh, Emmy Bradford, whom they attacked for racism. And yeah, I mean, it's absolute Shonda that you can't run for president of the United States or for any political office in the United States without pledging loyalty to a foreign power, Israel. Now, I'm, I love Israel. I lo love the Jewish state. But it should, the Israel lobby should not have as much, well, it should not be kowtowed to as much as it is 
people running for public office in the United States should not be effectively forced to pledge loyalty to a foreign power. Whatever. Um, but it was important for them to get hold of the National Endowment for Humanities because it was a uh, uh, it offered considerable um, resources which they could give out to their friends. And the guy who got that position was the great intellectual, you name him. Yeah, William Bennett. <laughs> William Bennett, of course. Yes. Who else would you want in charge of the National and Sonny says back then Republicans were massive segregationists. Well, guess what? Everyone's a massive segregationist. Right? Everyone prefers to be around people like them. So people on the left prefer to be around people on the left. Gays prefer, generally speaking, to be around gays. Uh, Indian Americans prefer to be around Indian Americans. Muslims prefer to be around Muslims. Christians prefer to be around Christians. I believe in freedom of association. Now, there are certainly forms of... You know, publicly mandated, legally sanctioned, and enforced uh, forms of segregation that you know, are, are just seem absolutely repellent, particularly from the perspective of, of my own individual life, growing up in Australia, growing up in California, never having you know, lived under any type of you know, publicly sanctioned segregation. What the circumstances were in, in the American South at uh, certain times – Right, which are kind of you know unfathomable from the position of 2023, but compared to you know some massive violent conflict, uh, maybe at times you know, official segregation was a better choice in certain times and certain circumstances than you know the resumption of you know massive amounts of of violence and disorder. So. I don't want to live in a country with uh, racial segregation, but I don't want to live in a massively violent and topsy-turvy uh, country that, where people are at each other's throats either. So law and order is a very big deal to me. And there do come times when different groups start to go at each other's throats, all right? Why is there no peace in the Middle East? Because there's no clear-cut winner, right? When there's finally a clear-cut winner, either Israel or the Arab Muslim states, then there'll finally be peace in the Middle East. But when you have people competing for survival, then you get you know, very nasty outbreaks of incredible amounts of, of violence and, and human suffering. And India right now, over the last 10 years, it has steadily moved into the realm of the best interests of the majority. Right? Having a government that primarily caters to the best interests of the majority of its citizens strikes me as a fairly sane path. What we're heading towards is uh, perhaps much more dangerous if, if we're turning into a majority-minority country. We, we've never had that before in history and have that work out. Special endowment right, for humanity. Right. The guy who wrote uh, – that that's, somebody wrote a story back in uh, – I don't know when, uh, I think in Chronicles magazine mm -hmm. about the dissertation that Bennett wrote for his doctorate. Yeah. I forget what – I don't even know what field it is. Do you know what field he got yeah, his doctorate I, it's, in? it's also in the second edition of my book on the conservative movement. Oh, is it? Okay. So I, I'm struck by how often people base their, their worldview, and particularly when people are willing to, say, burn their ties with polite society on the basis of completely bogus facts, and you see this a lot on the – on the racial right, right? And so I'm looking at virtual pilgrim. He posts on my YouTube, what liberals and conservatives get wrong is that they don't understand that the intention of the founding of the United States was to have a liberal democracy within the bounds of a white racial Christian homogenous nation. 
right? The more citizens have in common with each other, usually the more social trust and cohesion they'll have. Conservatives and liberals now want to expand the shibboleth to all the nations in the world through foreign policy and mass immigration. This is a recipe for destruction. I agree with that. My political position is a hybrid of the right and the left, preserving the racial, ethnic, and religious identity of America. This was articulated in 1787 by John Jay, who wrote, Providence has been pleased to give this one connected country to one united people, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs. Look, I've spent about four months of the last 18 months in Sydney, Australia, and there is a tremendous amount of diversity there, and yet far higher levels of social trust, social cohesion, and infinitesimal amounts of crime. So there are forms of diversity that still allow for tremendous amounts of social cohesion, social trust, and low rates of of crime. But some types of diversity seem to work out pretty well. Other types of diversity are an absolute disaster. So I don't hold either diversity or homogeneity as in and of themselves just great things. It depends on the particular combinations in particular times and places, depending on incentives, right? depending on you know, what people need to survive in a very complicated and constantly changing world. So John Jay said that America was a Christian nation. We should prefer to elect Christians to public office. Yeah, I wouldn't expect Christians to have any different attitude. Why would Christians want to be ruled by non-Christians? That doesn't make sense to me. Right, Virtue Pilgrim says, I read Jenna Goldberg's book, Liberal Fascism. I also read a book by Charles Krauthammer, by Mark Levin, Michael Medved, Andrew Breitbart, and caught it 10 years ago. Then I became red-pilled by Paul Gottfried. Along with reading these books, I listened for 30 years to Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, Michael Medved, Laura Ingram, Lars Larson, Sean Hannity, and a dozen preachers on the radio. Never once did any of these people mention that I would become a minority in my own country by 2040. So all sorts of very smart people on, on the right believe this, and many smart people on the left and the center in the news media believe this too, but it's bogus, right? People don't understand what's going on. They believe absolute nonsense. So Virtual Pilgrim says, once I learned this statistic, but this statistic is false, right? But he says, once I learned this statistic, I knew that all these people are the most despicable human beings that ever existed on the face of the earth. So he goes to this incredibly passionate denunciation based on false statistics. Gatekeepers and traitors of the communist Marxist globalists pretending to be on my side while all the while they were never once telling me anything at all that is true about anything. Well, he's basing this assertion on bogus facts, right? All this talk about the coalition of the ascendant, right, where you know people of color will be ascendant and they will dominate and form the majority in, in America. Well, it's based on a you know, factually incorrect understanding of census data, right? This Majority-minority narrative is wrong. This is sociologist Richard Alba. He's referring to the idea that non-white Americans will outnumber whites by 2050 or so. And Richard Alba wrote a terrific book, The Great Demographic Illusion. He shows that many, quote-unquote, non-whites are assimilating into an American mainstream, much as various ethnic white groups did before them. So government statistics fail to account for this complex reality largely for political reasoning, and so they're encouraging sloppy thinking about the country's future, which we just got from a very smart man, Virtual Pilgrim. But Virtual Pilgrim has become incandescent with rage on the basis of bogus statistics. So you need to understand how the census works. I am 116th Chinese. If I put on my Census Bureau form that I am uh, Asian and Caucasian, I would be counted solely as Asian. 
because of liberal civil rights group lobbying for the ability to tick off more than one racial box and then the census counts people who tick off more than one racial box as wholly the non-white variety right so people on the left these leaders of liberal left-wing civil rights groups feared a recognition of multiracialism would dilute the numerical strength of minorities and make it harder to enforce anti-discrimination laws so they wanted to exaggerate the numbers of non-white people in this country so it's reviving the one drop rule from the jim crow era so someone who's one-eighth black seven-eighth white puts on the census that they're you know, both black and white, they accounted in the U.S. Census Bureau as 100% black. So all sorts of people are getting hysterical, right, that, you know, race war is imminent, civil war is imminent because America is going to turn into a, you know, minority-majority country, that, you know, whites are going to be outbred by non-whites. No such thing is is really happening. And and people base their entire worldviews on bogus statistics, bogus facts, very smart, very intelligent people will dedicate their lives, you know, on the basis of an understanding of reality that is far removed from the truth. Okay, okay, then I also read it there. Right, it's it's about value clarification, and it was done under Silver, who later became the president of Boston University. Oh, he was the guy who ran for governor. Right. Back in 1990 against Bill Weld, he ran as a conservative Democrat. He He was like Trump. Yes, because they they would call them the silver shockers. <laughs> that's right. He would say something that was obviously true, and the press would call it a shocker, mm-hmm. and he would get more popular. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But but he did have neoconservative connections, uh, uh, which largely came through his student Bennett. And at the time, at the time, Bennett got. I think when he received his uh, doctorate, he was at the University of Texas, where Silver had taught. Uh, the, dis- the dissertation is about forty pages, and it's full of grammatical errors. It's just an embarrassment, and this yes. is what they, this is the intellectual they put up because we can't have Emmy Bradford, no. who <laughs> had written scholarly pieces. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, our people could smack their side, you know, with one. Yeah, those who are anointed as our leading right-wing intellectuals are an embarrassment. All right, they, they're they just really pathetic. Almost all right-wing pundits are pathetic. They they employ shoddy reasoning. They don't know what they're talking about. They They lack learning. They lack scholarship. They, you know, induce hype for frequently bogus reasons. And uh, th- that's why I d- just dedicate so much of my show of late to decoding the nonsense that dominates conservative discourse. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.